we, we heard the word, you know, in baptism. We heard the word in singing, heard the word, literally read this morning to begin our time. Uh, it only makes sense for us to go to the word, right? Uh, let's go to Mark chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1 <clears throat> is where we're going to be this morning. Hey, while you're getting there, if you are, are maybe a guest or, or you know, it's just been a while since I mentioned this, uh, you see that slide that flashes up there that talks about children's church? I always forget to mention, what, give some context to that. If you have a child between the ages four and second grade, what that is is just sort of a more tailored environment for them to go and be able to worship in a way that is, again, more tailored toward them. Uh, we offer some things, they have like a children's little guide in your worship guide and things, but that's an environment where they, they may play a game or, or sing songs and they receive a devotion, um, but it's just an environment that's more suited for, for them if they have a hard time sitting through the worship service. So when they dismiss to do that, they usually go over to the children's building, which is across the parking lot, which is where you would pick them up after they're done, okay? So uh, anyway, we'll try to do better at mentioning that, but just we kind of assume things uh, from time to time and don't mean to do that. So that's uh, children's church. So um, all right, so Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning, and you'll see behind me that the slide, the title slide, sort of resembles what we've been looking at the last four weeks. Uh, the mini-series through Advent called The Heralds. Uh, that's by design because what I'm sort of framing this as today as sort of the fifth week, sort of a, a prologue, or, or rather a, a postlude to, to that series. In weeks one through four, we talked about the heralding of Jesus' birth. And we looked at that in the lives of several individuals. We looked at that, first of all, uh, from Isaiah's perspective, and then looked at <clears throat> Elizabeth and Zechariah, and then Gabriel's voice, and the angel to Joseph, and then finally the angels to <clears throat> the shepherds. In that series, what we talked about was, simply put, how Jesus came to be. And you see that, right, in Matthew's telling and Luke's telling. In those Gospels, they talk about how Jesus came to be. What was his birth narrative? Matthew begins there and Luke begins there. But Mark and John, the other two Gospels, begin their Gospels a little bit differently. Instead of talking about how he came to be, they talk about what he came to be. Meaning, what was the thing that Jesus came to do? Why did he come to earth for us? You know, Mark is the author of the book of Mark. That's an easy one to remember, right? John is the author of the book of John. But Mark's a little bit different from John in that John's gospel was written by John from the eyewitness of John, but Mark wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. But instead, Mark collected all of his data from another guy, Peter. They did a missionary journey together. And while this is the author Mark's telling of the gospel, he's doing so from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Why do I say that? Because these two Gospels begin in a unique way. They talk about what Jesus came to do. And they're told by, for all intents and purposes, Jesus' two best friends. Instead of starting with how he came to be, how did that event transpire? They talk about what? What is the substance? And by the way, they both start with something that kind of runs parallel with one another. And that is the coming of John the Baptist. They begin with John the Baptist baptizing, heralding, in a sense, the ministry of Jesus. Jesus would come to do something. And what he would do is that he would be the light in the midst of darkness. He would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So, as we begin a new year, 
tomorrow begins that new year, this sort of involuntary reset button that we press. And as we begin a new year with likely big goals and big aspirations, we have a big God who empowers us into the new year. But we also know that we will make big failures covered by the big Lamb of God who bore our sin. It's important to have perspective as we go into the new year. And that is that the hope of Christmas, which we looked at for the last four Sundays, is not merely in a baby in a wooden cradle, but in a Savior on a wooden cross. Jesus is born to die, that we may live. So I want to see how John the Baptist heralded him in his ministry, and how this sends us into a new year as heralds of him with our hope in him. So look at Mark with me. Mark 1, 1 through 13. It says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Notice the quote here is from Isaiah 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John, that's John the Baptist, appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels. We're ministering to him. You know, there's a lot of breaks and places that we could stop, but there's a reason that I want us to go all the way through verse 13 this morning. We'll see that by the end of our time. Again, we began this Advent series in weeks one through four where Mark begins his gospel. Did you notice that? He quotes Psalm or Isaiah 40 right out of the gate. That's the first passage that we looked at in week one of this little mini-series. It's Mark's way of saying what I started this mini-series saying, which is, before I tell you what happened— Mark is saying in his gospel, remember that God told us that he would make it happen. He's simply saying, this is something that God saw coming. In fact, he made it happen. He brought it to be. We see that in verses 1 through 3, where Mark begins with that passage in Isaiah 40. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, that word gospel is wonderful. We'll talk about that in a second. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Notice all these words are going to find their significance here. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel literally means good news. And that's what Mark is saying. He said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. This is the story of good news. And this story begins with the fact that God said that it was coming. Last week on Christmas Eve, we looked at Luke chapter 2 where the angel said, I bring you what? Good news. 
Just right here. I, I bring you gospel. He's saying this is the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. John the Baptist even, right? When John the Baptist, remember two weeks ago, we talked about uh, John the Baptist remember, three weeks ago in the womb, in Elizabeth's womb, uh, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist and Jesus being cousins. And that when John the Baptist being in the womb, Mary walks in in Elizabeth's company, Jesus is, is just... <laughs> Very, very early stage pregnancy in Mary's womb. And what happens when Jesus walks in the room through Mary who's carrying him? John leaps in the womb. The reason I say that is that this is a special relationship from the very get-go. We know that he is the one who prepares the way. Why? Because these cousins had a God-sized tag team mission. That John would prepare the way for the one who would provide a way. Jesus was the hero. But John was a hype man for the one who came first and pointed to the hero. You know what a hype man is? Hype man's the one that's like, you got it, bro. Go for it. Okay. All right. We're listening. That's John. He probably sounded just like that. That's a hype man. In fact, here's a better example of a hype man. Will you show that video for us? He said, he's like that. <laughs> That's what I imagine Jesus and John the Baptist were like in preschool. If you didn't catch that, the kid they were clapping for, his name was even King. I mean, is that not the perfect video for me to show? I don't know. Everybody needs a hype man like that. Jesus had one. John the Baptist was the guy that went before him and said, look at that guy. Look what that guy is coming. Look what he's preaching. Look what he's doing. John wanted people to know that the Messiah's ministry would be built on something. It would be built on not popularity. It would be built on the fact that he would do something, and that is that he would save people from their sin. And so to prepare God's people for that message, John began dunking people like that. He just began putting people underwater as a symbol of their need to turn from the sin that Jesus would come and save them from. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says that, right? It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance, for, don't miss this last part, for the forgiveness of sins. He's not just arbitrarily putting people underwater. He's pointing them to something. Again, similar to what we do when we baptize. It says, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, we're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We see a scene here, right? In fact, I'm going to let you see a map that kind of gives this scene a little bit more detail. I'm going to put that map up there, please. Ignore the box and the, the lines and stuff on the right side. But what I want you to see is where Jerusalem is, which is in the middle of that box. The River Jordan is a vertical line uh, just east of Jerusalem and north of the Salt or the Dead Sea. Uh, but maybe it's hard to see, and I wish I had that little thing that Michael makes me, you know, puts me to shame with, a little laser point. I think it's back there. But do you see just west of the Dead Sea where it says sort of in sideways letters, the wilderness of Judea? Do you see that? It's, it's hard to read wilderness of Judea. So you see where that is, and you can even tell that the discoloration. Do you see how the, the, the land gets lighter, like it's, like it's tan, um, whereas it's more green on, on the left side of that map? Does that make sense? 
that wilderness runs vertically, and it runs right there through the Jordan River. The reason those words are significant is because we've already read the word wilderness, which is where John was preaching, right? Jesus is bapt- or being baptized, and John was baptizing, but he was doing so in the Jordan River. It says that people were coming, they're going out to him. It says they were going out. You see Judea in big, all capital letters. That entire area is the region of Judea. And it says that people were coming from all over the place. That's not saying exhaustively that the whole civilization was coming out. It's, it's the author's way of saying people were coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem, all the way across that wilderness to go and see what John was talking about. I don't know. Does that help? I, I think that's kind of neat to see that wilderness that is being talked about here. They came to John confessing their sins, a baptism of repentance. What those words mean are that John was saying you need to turn from your sin and turn toward God. You need to be forgiven. Your sin needs to be dealt with. Now, we think about baptism and we think this is where it all started. And that's probably because we use the word baptism and that's what the word means. It means to dip or immerse underwater. But don't you know there were other times in in the Jewish people's uh, heritage and in their law that they did ritual washings? You know what I'm talking about? Go read the Old Testament. You read a lot about ritual washings. But those ritual washings were different than this one. This ritual washing was something that they weren't necessarily unfamiliar with for the Jews, but John made it known that this baptism was unlike any that they had ever seen before. The reason why is because its meaning prepared the way for their Messiah. And it did so in a couple of ways. Number one, he reminds people of their sins. That's why he's saying you need to be dunked. You need to be dipped in this water. Um, why wash unless you're dirty, basically? He's saying you need to be washed. If I, and I tell you you need to be washed, I'm implying something in saying that. I'm saying you are dirty. And that'd be really messed up if we weren't talking about figurative language, right? Not literally. You look like a very clean people. When he says you need to be washed, he's talking spiritually and saying you, need, you are dirty. Sin has dirtied you. But the second thing is that he transitions their thinking, and this is very important. He transitions their thinking from national salvation, which they were big on, to now individual salvation. They were thinking about how God would save Israel, how God would redeem his people. But he says you need to stop thinking big picture, and you need to think about your problem. You got a problem. Yeah, Israel's got a problem. Yeah, all of humanity, all of mankind, church, has a problem. But I'm here to tell you something. You got a problem. And that's it. We're not all just sinners. We are. But you are a sinner. And this is John's message. He says, stop thinking corporately. You need to think as an individual. You have a sin problem. Not just we, you. And as John identifies their problem, he also identifies the Lamb of God who would bring the solution. That's why John 1, 29 says the next day, this is John the Baptist talk about, talking about John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He'd already been baptizing people, saying it's going to happen. He's saying, that's the guy. That's the one who's going to make it happen. What John was doing is he was baptizing people. He was giving them an outward demonstration of an inward declaration, stating something. That's not what I said a minute ago. Our baptism and the baptism of Christians and the baptism of Jesus is not just an outward demonstration of of, of an inward declaration. It is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. John is saying the transformation is coming. I'm telling you, you need to declare that you got a problem and that you need it. I have a sin problem is what John was saying. Jesus would say, I have a sin solution. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm unworthy, that I'm, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, John's baptism is saying, Our need for forgiveness. But the Christian baptism is, We are forgiven. Guys, the only thing powerful about the water is the washing that it points to, the Savior that it points to. This is the message of John, and on the other side of that work, it's the message of our church and our faith. We have a greater baptism. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I want to take away two key components of that greater baptism that I think are good things for us to latch on to. The first is that we have a provider of God's favor. Through Jesus, we have the provider of God's favor. The provider of God's favor. Don't we all want to be in the favor of God? Well, man, taking after what Chase said a minute ago, we can't. We can't be in the favor of God unless God earns us that favor. Isaiah put that so well in that lengthy sermon that he preached before this sermon. (laughs) That God has shown his favor to us, not through our work, but through the work of another. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, which is north of the area that we looked at on that map just a moment ago. It says, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, it wasn't because he needed to repent of sin. Jesus was sinless. He was spotless. He did not have a sin problem like all the other people that John had been baptizing. So why was Jesus baptized? You may think, well, as an example for us. And I think there's truth to that. I think he did do it as an example to us. And while that's true, I also think that there's something far greater that we should see in Jesus' baptism. That it was a foreshadowing to what he would do. Because Jesus was not just an example for us. You know what he was? Jesus was identifying with the sins of people, even though he himself was sinless. Jesus was saying, I'm going to be baptized into this, this water that represents the judgment, the need for washing, even though I don't need washing. But the fact of the matter is, I'm going to bear the judgment for you. He's saying, my baptism is going to foreshadow what I'm going to accomplish. And later he would bear the sins of people in death, even though he himself was a spotless lamb. Verses 10 and 11 say, and when he came up out of the water, he also came up out of the grave, by the way. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. What that looked like, I do not know. But it must have been something to talk about. Mark sure thought so. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. There's a couple things that we're going to look at this morning that I'm going to call sort of thematic whispers that we see in God's Word. Sort of these themes that I'm not saying that I'm very careful to say, oh, there's all this symbolism and and this is supposed to make us look at this and all these things. I hesitate to say that because I don't want to say that the author meant something that he did not mean. However, I think that there are themes that we see from beginning to end, from Old Testament and New, these whispers, these thematic whispers that I do think are worth examining, perhaps. And one of those is the symbol of a dove. One of those is the symbol of a dove. Just a whisper, I think, from the Old Testament. The dove was a symbol of peace. It was a symbol of God's favor on the other side of death. And the reason I say that is because there is a specific instance where we look to God's favor in the form of a dove on the other side of death. Do you know what it is? Noah. It's Noah and the ark. 
in Noah's Ark, and you may know that story, you may not, and I, I hate to assume any information, but God flooded the entire earth because man was evil continually. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 6. All the thoughts of man were evil continually. And so God flooded the earth, but he spared one family, Noah's family. Noah, by faith, built an ark. His family piled into it with animals, and you may know the rest of that story. But the water represented not the fact that God just wanted to make it rain. It was the fact that God was judging all of people. He was pouring out his judgment, not just water, but it was water of judgment on people. It was God's judgment poured out. And after many days, Noah goes out, and he takes a dove, First a raven, but I'm skipping some of the story. He takes a dove, and he releases the dove, and the dove returns to him. And he's, it's his way of thinking, okay, the water hasn't receded enough. A week later, he comes back out with the dove, and he releases the dove, and the dove goes, and it returns. But this time, it returns with a fresh olive leaf. By the way, since then, God's people saw the olive branch as a sign of God's favor, peace on the other side of this global flood of judgment. Do you hear it, right? God's favor... The fact that he is pleased on the other side of God pouring out water of judgment, God's favor toward Noah and his family. Now, why do I bring this up? Because Noah and his family passed through judgment waters, and yet God shows his favor, his pleasure to them in the form of a dove. Jesus' baptism is into symbolic water. He would take on judgment, burial, death for us. That's why we say when we're baptized, buried with Christ, because these are judgment waters. Jesus passed through these waters, and he was raised, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It's symbolic, because God's favor, his peace. what says, my son with whom I'm well pleased. He has my favor. That God's favor, his peace, will come through this man. That's the symbol, right? God's favor, his peace will come through this man. Hope on the other side of death. Guys, Jesus brings an outward demonstration. But more importantly, he brings an inward transformation. Amen? He brings the favor of God. And I believe that this foreshadows that. Yesterday, we were driving home, and we were making our way down I-65. Um, I don't know how often you drive on I-65 down coming south through Alabama. We came through Gardendale, and there's a church, I think it's First Baptist Gardendale, that has a massive cross in front of the church. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen this cross? Throw the image up there if you don't mind. This really, really, it's, like I said, it's a big cross. If you've ever seen it, you probably knew what I was talking about. It's a very, very big cross. I want to say it's like 120 feet. It looks a lot bigger than that in that picture right there. Uh, it is a very, very big cross. Um, we were driving past it, and I told the kids, we have four small children, and I said, hey, guys, look out there. Like, you can, you can see a cross. And Eden, our three-year-old, looked out there, and she goes, oh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Like that. And I just giggled and looked at Brooke, and I was like, she's adorable. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, she has a, a three-year-old understanding of that, which is, is not much, honestly. And, and obviously, we as her parents are going to throw logs on that fire and teach her. Um, but I'm thankful that she has even memorized something so precious, even if she doesn't understand what that really means. What I wanted to say, maybe this is me as a pastor, I wanted to say, do you know why? And she would just say, Daddy, look at the trees. Look at the, she would just change the subject. But I'll tell you, do you know why? You know why Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Sometimes I ask that question, and people don't know what to say. Why is sin such a big deal? 
You see, the best way to get to our need is to ask questions that cause us to go backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards. Because the answer to that question is, yes, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Why is sin such a big deal? Because sin separates us from God. Because sin has eternal consequences. A three-year-old's not going to say that. But you need to know that. The sin has eternal consequences. The consequences, the wages, we say, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, I mean, something you get for something you have done, there's good wages, like what you get when you work your job, but there are bad wages, like what you get when you sin against a holy God. And the wages of our sin is death. It's that there are consequences for our sin. And see, the consequences are that God is a God of justice. I heard one pastor one time say, what is your biggest problem? You may think, my sin. But he said, no, your biggest problem is that God's a God of justice. That God will punish every evildoer. That sin must be punished. John, Isaiah, I thought what you said a minute ago was so outstanding. It's so profound. And that's that Jesus did not pardon sin. Or God did not pardon sin. God pardoned you of your sin. Sin very much was paid for, just not by you. Jesus paid it all, as we sing. So I said, it is finished when he poured out his last bit of blood. The fact of the matter is that God's justice must be satisfied. The word for that is his wrath. God's wrath must be satisfied. The good news of the gospel, please listen, is that when Jesus took your place on the cross, he turned God's wrath toward you into his favor toward you. And this is symbolic of that. That Jesus would be buried in judgment water, burial, and that he would come out. And that what he would do would receive the favor of God. Praise Jesus. John MacArthur says, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you had lived his. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It's a greater baptism, and we're looking at it. He's the provider of God's favor. The second thing is that he's the provider of our victory, <clears throat> the provider of our victory. Notice that the Spirit is woven through these events. You have, you, he, John is saying, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Then you have the Spirit literally present at Jesus' baptism as he descends on him like a dove. And then right after that, in verse 12, you, say, you see that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and, verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was there with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's like Survivor Man or something, right? Jesus going out like Bear grills. You guys remember that? I don't know. I didn't have it written down, and now I've said it, so... <clears throat> this is an abbreviated version of the temptation of Jesus. Matthew and Luke tell us a lot more details here about Satan tempting Jesus. Matthew and Luke tell us that uh, Satan tempts him to depend on earthly things instead of depending on God. He does that in the form of saying, just turn those things into bread and you'll be fine. He tempts him to serve his selfish desires instead of God's desires. That's when he says, hey, you just say the word and I'll just make everybody praise you. Satan just tempting him and saying, serve your flesh, serve your selfish desires. Don't forget, forget God's desires. And then he tempts him to force God to be who he wanted him to be, when he wanted him to be it, when he said, just jump off of this thing and let God deliver you. Take matters into your own hands. And obviously Jesus triumphed over all of them. 
It may seem obscure, <clears throat> and there's so much that can be talked about in these, just these little two verses, but I want you to see something, which again, I think <clears throat> is a thematic whisper, and it's centered around the word 40. <clears throat> that number may bring a couple of things to mind. This is a passage that's already been steeped in the Old Testament. He started with Isaiah 40. He's talked about washing. They knew a lot about washing rituals. John the Baptist is described like Elijah is described in the Old Testament with his camel's hair and honey and locusts and all that stuff. You didn't have the spirit and the dove, which again, I think there's, there's some symbolism there. And now you have a wilderness temptation. You know who else went through a wilderness temptation? Israel did. For how many years? 40 now, I know we're talking about years and days here, but that should bring to mind a major occurrence of wilderness temptation of God's people. In the Israel wilderness, their wanderings, they were warriors, they were idol worshipers, they doubted God, they bickered against God for 40 years. But listen, where Israel failed for their 40, Jesus succeeded for his 40. Where Israel failed, where God's people, where people failed, Jesus triumphed. Where they bickered and made demands of God, Jesus accepted his trials and trusted God. Where they failed in their time of temptation, Jesus rose above temptation. Where they failed in the fight against sin, Jesus triumphed over sin. On the one hand, you have the failings of men, but on the other, you have the triumphs of the God-man. A thematic whisper, I'd say. Why does that matter to us? Because church, where we have failed in the fight against our sin, as just recipients of the wages of our work, the death, the grave, Jesus has triumphed over sin and grave. And the Spirit sent from God to him because God was pleased with him. Do you know what happens in the lives of believers? We receive the Spirit of God because God has seen favor with us. Man. But I want you to understand, understand something. And I think that this is where, this is why I wanted to preach this message today, as we go into the new year. Because there's something that's easy to overlook here, and I don't want you to overlook it. And that is that I want you to understand that the same God who was pleased with Jesus also drove him into a season of testing. The same God who was pleased with Jesus also drove him into a season of testing. Guys, it is entirely possible for us to be diligently following God and yet be driven by the Spirit of God into a hard circumstance or season. I would love to get up here and tell you that this is going to be an amazing year for you. That's a message the world loves. New year, new you. Go be great. Can I just tell you something? There are going to be days this year that you're not great. Maybe more than the days that you are. You don't need a message on the days that you feel great. You need a message on the days that you don't. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't know what this year holds. Like the one we just finished. The year may hold illness, persecution, loss. I was looking at my calendar. Just I, I'm a guy that likes to look back. I was looking through my calendar this year and looking at different events and things, just things that happened. And I saw my grandmother's death on there because I had her funeral on my calendar. I didn't know that was going to happen. And that's reality. Is that there may be times this year where you're on a mountain, and there may be times this year where you're in a valley. God may be pleased with you through his son Jesus, and I praise God that he is if you're in Christ. 
but he also may be driving you into a season of testing. The good news is that Jesus' time of intense testing included hardships, it included danger, but it also included angels ministering to him. It included the fact that the Spirit was with him. It included the fact that God's favor rested on him. And so I've got two things applicationally that I'll send with you that I think we find here. As we think of resolution, you know what the word resolute means? It means decidedly so. That probably doesn't define many of your resolutions. But there's something that is decidedly so, two things in particular that I want to leave with you today. Number one is that God's favor leaves with you today. God's favor goes with you into January 1. His favor is with you all the way through the year if you're in Christ. And I hope that you are. And I hope that you can say confidently, resolutely, that God's favor does go with you. John has mentioned that Jesus will baptize in the Spirit. What does he mean by that? You watch, maybe watch football. Um, yesterday there was a football game, and I want to say somebody got doused with Gatorade. Sometimes they do that, right? It's probably going to happen to Nick Saban in a week or two. Um, unscripted moments, you know. <clears throat> you know when they get doused with <laughs> Stop it, bro. You just, I hate that look. Um, when the coach gets doused with Gatorade, I always feel bad for the opposing coach, you know. Not just because he has to watch that happen, but because he has to, like, shake the guy's hand, and he's just sticky and red. And You see his clothes, right? They were in, like, a white shirt, and they get doused with red Gatorade. That, that nice, fancy Peter Millar button-up that they had on, Josh, that you love so much, it's just stained with red Gatorade. <laughs> Another unscripted moment. Uh, it's just stained. And then he goes up to this coach, and they, get, they usually have a shake, and they may, they may even put a bro hug on each other. And I'm just thinking, my guy, you, you're disgusting. You're, you're sticky. You're nasty. And now this dude has the residuals of that loss to go with him into the shower that night. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. It just seems cruel. But when I think about that, I think about that as sort of a dousing. It's being doused with, the, with a content, a substance. That Gatorade, you see it on them. You see it on them for the rest. They do a post-game press conference. He still looks like that. Guys, listen. When we are baptized into Christ Jesus— Literally, but I would say even figuratively, when we come to know Jesus and the Spirit washes over us, it should be clear to those whose hands that we shake, necks that we hug, those that we interact with, that we are wet. That we're covered with something. We're covered and say there's still residuals. That this person has been baptized in someone that is not of man. That the Spirit of God should be so all over us that we are sort of spiritually sticky. This guy is different. He's, he's, he's covered with something, and I would say covered with someone. That's what baptism in the Spirit means. It means that it should be evident that we have been immersed in him. Guys, the Holy Spirit is not inactive in your life. He's not a co-pilot. He's the Lord. He is the master. There's three things that he does for us as he goes with us. Number one, he provides guidance into the Christian life. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, what does it say next? He will what? He'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Guys, the spirit provides guidance into the Christian life. You ain't got to do it alone. He goes with you. He also provides gifts, secondly, to help other believers. The gifts of the spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 4, uh, 4 through 7 says, now, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, that means the same guy in charge, the same one that gives that gift has the same thing in mind. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them. And everyone, verse 7, I love this verse, says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Don't miss the word common. God does not save you just for you. He saves you to be a blessing to others. You're given the Spirit not just to be glad that you've been given a gift from God. Gifts are given that you would be a giver of that gift. That you'd bless your church family. You know what you can do this next year? Not just go and be guided by the Spirit of God. Be a blesser of other people by the Spirit of God. Plug into your local church. And if this is not your church family, and you don't have a church family, you should make this one the one. Because God is at work here. The Spirit of God is at work here. He is doing amazing things in our midst. That's why I don't mind our servers running a little bit over when this water is running a little bit over. The last thing is that God provides a Godward shift. His Spirit provides a Godward shift in our feelings and our actions. You know this better by the name, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit. That means if someone's really in him, they produce things that look like they're in him, that stickiness. Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know what that means? Is that you're a work in progress. But there is progress. And there is a work. God pouring out his favor on us. But that favor is not contingent on how well you perform. It is contingent on the sufficiency of Christ's payment. We can be resolute about that. The last thing and the second thing is that God's promise is your good. Notice I put good in quotes there. God's promise is your good. I get that directly from a verse of scripture that you may know, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things? I don't know, man. Life can be a real drag sometimes. Yeah, even in those times. God is working for your good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's promise is not our ease. His promise is not our comfort. God's promise is not our prosperity. His promise is our good. Your good means spiritual growth. Your good means opportunities to make him known. Your good means nearness to him. Your good means opportunities to love him more than you love stuff and friends and a job and life itself. And God's going to provide those opportunities this year. That even hardship can be for your good. So Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Last thing, and you'll see this on the screen behind me, but I think it is a good way to put a bow on this. <clears throat> I would reference this quote if I could. I don't know who said it, but it says, God will never lead us where his grace cannot sustain us or his power cannot protect us. God will never lead us where his grace cannot sustain us or his power cannot protect us. If you've ever given your life to Jesus, you go from this place, you go into tomorrow with the favor of the Lord. It wasn't earned by you. It was earned by another. But the good message it's the same spirit that God used to show favor to him is the same spirit that God uses to show favor to you.
And we can go from this place and live a life that honors him, confident that he sustains us, confident that his power protects us. You know, it is easy to walk by sight, but it is better to walk by faith. Today, my hope for you, church, is that as you begin a new year, that you will begin that walk by knowing that you cannot do it alone. And if you're here today, and you've been trying to do it alone your whole life, that these baptisms, that something about something that was said this morning has hit you square between the eyes, and you know that now is not the time to suppress the work of the Spirit, but to allow Him to work. And perhaps it's time for you to be obedient and be baptized, to be an outward demonstration of the inward transformation. Perhaps it is time for you to not be baptized because you've never even given your life to Jesus in the first place. And today, it's time for you to nail down the main thing, which is that he needs to be your portion. He needs to be your Savior and your Lord. Today, whatever that looks like, as the praise team comes, as we respond, I pray that you will respond in faith and that God would use his goodness to do a work in you.